Uh, good evening, everybody. I'd like to welcome everybody to the Pan American Center for an evening, for lack of a better term, we will call uh, a look at Francophone uh, literature. The uh, What we're going to be talking about is um, is a curious phenomenon that has been taking place in recent years in France. When I use the term curious, I don't mean it in, in a devious or sinister way. I'm just saying that it's curious because it isn't immediately clear why it is happening. Um, if we go back to the year 1973, uh, a novelist named Jacques Chessex uh, was the first Swiss to win the Prix Goncourt. Uh, if we fast forward to 1986, uh, the first, we have the first Belgian to win the Prix Goncourt, a writer named Michel Host, H-O-S-T, who won the, the prize for a novel called The Vallée de Nuit. The following year, um, this man, Tahardin Jeloun, also won the Prix Goncourt, the first Moroccan to win the Prix Goncourt. In 1992, the writer Patrick Chamoiseau became the first writer from Martinique to win the Prix Goncourt. The following year, 1993, the Lebanese writer Amin Malouf became the first writer from his country to win the Prix Goncourt. Um, the Prix Goncourt in France is like someone here winning the National Book Award. It is the best prize there is, uh, despite the fact that uh, it's still, uh, 90 years after its establishment, brings with it a cash reward of only 50 francs uh, in other words, if you win the Prix Goncourt, you take home $9, but um, it is a major big deal. Uh, if you win the Prix Goncourt, uh, within a couple of weeks, your book will be on the bestseller list, and you very likely will go on to sell 200, 300, 500,000 copies. Uh, you'll become noticed internationally. It is a major thing. So the question is, why have these writers who have been winning in the, over the last 10 years, all of them writing in French, but none of them French. Why have they been attracting so much attention? They've been attracting a lot of attention. In 1987, uh, the Belgian writer Pierre Mertens won the Prix Renaudot, which is the second best award in France. A couple of years after that, uh, a writer by the name of... Um, a a man who wrote a book called Adriana dans tous mes rêves uh, won the, another one of the big awards. Um, so why is this happening? Um, and more than that, uh, these writers are not being published by small specialty houses like Présence Africaine or Édition de l'Armatant, which tends to publish books from uh, North Africa. They're being published by the major French trade houses. They're being published by they are being published by Alba Michel, by Grasset, by Lafont, the French equivalents of R. Knopf and Random House in Viking and Farstrass and Giroux and Pantheon and the New Press. Um, I'd like to make just a little bit of a, uh, of a point here, and it has to do with um, what we're going to be talking about as this panel goes on, which is how to, how to interpret and translate from the French writers who are not themselves French. Uh, what is it behind the language that you have to deal with to know what you're doing when you're translating it? Um, I'll tell just a very, very brief story. Um, there's a well-known jazz musician named Lou Donaldson who, although an alto saxophonist, likes to sing a song in his performances. And at some point he will do 
right after one song ends, he will, the rhythm section will play about a 32-bar blues introduction, very slow. And then Lou will step up and get the microphone, and he will say, uh, what you're hearing there is the blues. Back in North Carolina, where I come from, we call the blues suffering music. You have to have suffered to play the blues. You have to be on your way home from work and lose your entire paycheck. Then you know what the blues is. Then you can play the blues. Well, before anybody out there starts wondering, what is, that, what is this fool up there talking about? There's a very valid point here, and it has to do with choice and interpretation. If you're a, a jazz musician and you're playing the blues or any other thing that is essentially a, a spontaneous music, there are certain notes that you can use that work perfectly in interpretation. They're absolutely perfect choices. There are other notes in the same key that won't work at all. It has to do with how you are phrasing them, the notes chosen, and where they fit in in the line. By contrast, translating from the French with another culture behind it, it's the same thing. It's choice and interpretation. Why do you choose this definition of a word and not another definition of a word? The, idea, the reason is because the second definition won't work at all. Uh, if you look in French dictionaries, uh, and I looked through uh, five of them this week, there's a, a word griot, G-R-I-O-T. Uh, in France, it is a somewhat obscure word that has something to do with uh, the milling industry, with making flour. Yet in the Caribbean, also in sub-Saharan Africa, maybe possibly North Africa, it means something co totally different. You would not want to use this particular meaning of the word griot down there because you would be completely wrong. So once again, uh, choice and interpretation. Uh, the people we have here this evening know about this because, yes, they have to. It's what they do. Uh, so let me introduce them now um, and tell you a little bit about their credentials and the authors they will be translating. At the far end of the table here, we have with us Anikon Solal, who is um, known very, very well for two fine autobiographies, one of the French philosopher Paul Nizan and the other of the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, she was for four years cultural counselor to the French embassy here and is now a research professor at NYU. We have Linda Coverdale, um, who has translated people like Sébastien Japrizot, and uh, Hervé Guibert, to the friend who could not save my life. She will be reading tonight um, from the Martinique writer Patrick Chamoiseau um, from a book um, called Creole Tales, uh, which, will be, which is actually out uh, here for right now from the New Press. Um, next, we will be hearing from Marilyn de Jager. Uh, she has translated... Um, among other people, uh, the Zairean writer Viwai Mudimbe, Before the Birth of the Moon. She has tri translated Asya Jebar, who is an Algerian writer, uh, Women of Algiers in Their Apartments, which won an Alta Translation Award in 1992. She will be reading from the young Cameroonian novelist Calixte Beyala, um, who is in her early 30s and who is uh, becoming very, very well known. The name of the book she will be reading from is uh, Le Petit Prince de Belleville. It will be out here, uh, tail end of this year, distributed by Heinemann in the UK. And here next to me is Carol Volk. Um, she has translated the French political scientist Olivier Roy's uh, The Political Failure of Islam. Uh, she has translated Emmanuel Beau, and she'll be reading tonight from uh, Tahar Ben Jaloun's book. It's 
Here it's called Corruption. Uh, it's coming out from the new press later this year. Uh, in France, it was originally called uh, L'Homme Rompu. So let's start. I should say one other thing that um, uh, for those of you who follow uh, current events in the newspapers, uh, this, I want to remind you and reassure this is a literary panel. You will not be hearing anything about DNA testing from us tonight. So let me start with, um, let's start with Linda Coverdale. We'll work down the table this way, and then I will go back to Aniko Sadal for some comment about why these writers are important and whether we should be paying attention. Uh, let's start with Linda Coverdale, reading uh, Patrick Chamoiseau. Forced to live in a kind of hell, 
When taken as a whole, these tales provide a practical education, an apprenticeship in life, a life of survival in a colonized land. The Creole tale says that fear is inevitable, that every blade of grass may conceal a monster, and that one must know how to live with this. The Creole tale reveals that overt force guarantees eventual defeat and punishment, and that through cunning, patience, nerve, and resourcefulness, which is never a sin, the weak may vanquish the strong or seize power by the scruff of the neck. The Creole tale splatters the dominant system of values with all the immoral, or rather amoral, guile of the poor and downtrodden. Yet these stories contain no revolutionary message, and their remedies for misfortune are not collective ones. The hero is alone and selfishly preoccupied with saving his own skin. And so we might conclude, as Edward Glisson suggests, that what we have here is an emblematic detour, a system of countervalues or a counterculture that reveals itself as both powerless to achieve complete freedom and fiercely determined to strive for it nonetheless. The Creole storyteller is a fine example of this paradoxical situation. The master knows of his tales and allows him to tell them and sometimes even listens to them himself. So the storyteller must take care to use language that is opaque, devious, its significance broken up into a thousand sibling fragments. His narrative turns around long digressions that are humorous, erotic, often even esoteric. His dialogue with his audience is unceasing, punctuated with onomatopoeias and sound effects intended not only to hold his listeners' attention, but also to help camouflage any dangerously subversive content. And here again, Edward Bisson's right to us emphasize that the storyteller's object is almost to obscure as he reveals, to form and inform through the hypnotic power of the voice the mystery of the spoken word. Once the tale is told, our storyteller is quick to make fun of himself, to show that he is a mere nobody, an outsider even to the people in his story. They gave me a swift kick in the backside, and I trotted on over here to tell you all about it. So, in tribute to the stratagem, I did not try to strip the tales you are about to read of all their mystery, nor did I append a glossary. Allow the strange words to work their secret magic, and above all, read these stories only at night. Remember, I wrote them with the moon as my sole companion. For fear of being changed into a basket without handles, a fate described by the old storytellers who must have been amused even then to know that I would never, oh never, tempt such a fate as that, just to see. I will give you the short story here. The person who bled hearts dry. They say that in the days of the slave trade, more than one sea captain had his troubles. There's no call to shed tears over them, but allow me to tell you about the trader who transported in his hold a person of a most terrible sort. This captain's name is not worth writing down, still less that of a ship. As he was homeward bound from the shores of Africa where the sinister harvests of ebony were gathered in, his crew informed him that three sailors had wasted away in a peculiar fashion, without fever or pain. Their blood simply seemed to fall stagnant, thickening into dark honey. That very day, one of the captives in the cargo died in the same manner. The worried captain had the bodies lined up, hard by the mainmast, then looked them over and said, let's see what shape their hearts are in. Rooting around in their chests, the ship's surgeon, a man of the church who had undoubtedly drowned his soul in the sacramental wine, found only four wrinkled guavas, stunted and sear like some tropical scrub, 
and no one would ever have taken them for hearts if they hadn't been sitting in the right spot. Feeling faint, our captain had all this lot pitched over the side, he told. Four little splishes and four big splashes. The ship went on its dreadful way. As the meantime went by, there were more clusters of these mysterious deaths, among both sailors and slaves, that no prayer seemed able to stem. Four to port, seven to starboard, not to mention those of Eam and abaft. Off the bodies went to the tag-along dogfish. Sensing that his harvest was in danger, or that his men were slipping into mutiny, the captain had the most trembly of the trembling slaves brought to his cabin. What is causing this disaster, he demanded. Answer, or our sharks will snap you up alive. Just before his blood turned to syrup, the wretch blurted out, The old woman with rings on her fingers, she feeding herself that way. Then he died. They tossed him to the voracious fish he had so hoped to avoid, and I think we can say that this must have annoyed him all the same. Our captain sent for this beringed crone, and from the hold they fetched a woman of uncertain age, quite old, quite young, all dusty with ancient ears, and all in a childish flutter. Where does she come from? asked the captain, and who brought her to us? This was a puzzle. The mate, leader of the ruffians who raided peaceful villages to capture young slaves, had never seen her among his ropes and nets. As for the bosun's mate, who haggled over the black gold of the coastal barracoons, he could not recall trading her for I don't know what glass trinket or pouch of tobacco, and none of the armorer's mates remembered putting any chains on her, and no one in the gallery had noticed her uplifted face waiting for the foul soup they dished out every day. It was such an odd business that the captain chewed it over with a very bad grace for three hours until the creature spat in his eye, shrieking words from an Africa beyond the reach of time. Although he felt some vague misgivings, the captain ordered her taken out on deck. There, before the captives assembled amid vinegar fumes intended to mask the stench, he had her whipped, lashed to a gun, flogged for longer than it would take me to write it out 10,000 times. It was a mere shred the surgeon treated with bayberry and salt in the shade of a longboat. And yet, the shred summoned the strength to hoist herself up on one elbow and point a quivering finger at the captain, a black finger, but white, with infinite malediction. The strange person did not, of course, survive the remedies dispensed by the man of the church. They say that after her corpse was flung overboard, the sharks veered and sheared all around without ever touching her. And so she floated for 125 years until her sea change into a tragedy of coral that terrifies Medusas. As for the captain, they claimed that all sleep deserted him the first night, that on the second one he wept to feel his memories fading away, and that on the third his blood thickened into a sugar as dense as carbon, clotting around his suddenly dried up heart. At the sight of his lifeless body, the crew gave themselves up for damned, and began to dance upon the deck, upon the helm, upon the astrolabe and portolanos, upon the shrouds and the tangling sails. They danced so much that this shitty ship met with some misfortune, or maybe a coral reef, and plummeted to the scrapey bottom of the ocean deeps, surfacing only in the company of other phantom vessels, the sole ships that warned the sleepless slave traders that their human ferocity secreted in its own heart atrocities more savage still. Thank you, Linda. Uh, now we're going to hear from uh, Marlin de Yadra, who will be reading from Calix Bealas, Le Petit Prince de Belgique.
the book is written um, by in the in the voice of the protagonist, the little prince of Belleville, who is ten years old. Each chapter is introduced by a series of thoughts, really, um, of his father Abdou, who brought his family from Mali to Paris to make their lives better. The family consists of the son, ten-year-old Lukuma. Uh, two wives, one of whom is legitimate, the other is not, because in France more than one wife is not allowed, and a few other children who are rarely mentioned by name. I would like to read one of the introductions to a chapter early in the book by the father, Abdou, and then a little bit later on, one of the scenes written, spoken, written by Lukum himself, uh, to give you a sense of the two different tones that Bayala uses. So this is Abdu, thinking. Look out for yourself. Look out for yourself. Steal, pillage. The main point? Don't get caught. I know these words. They keep me company and keep the abyss at a safe distance from me. They unleash my weariness and fill me with dreams. They come and go inside my head, like a ball between my hands. They use me up, exhaust me, but I cling to them as if to a bit of earth, a bush. I can tell you everything. I've met so many men and women who came in droves to cling on to the city. Paris, an image, a perfume, a sunless mirage without trees. In my sleepless hours, I roam the streets, the alleyways. The night girds my loins with solitude and undresses my memory. In it, I hear the noises of a forgotten city melting away, a faraway rumble, a breath that falls silent, and a silence of chasm settling in. Nothing here, nobody here. Everything is absent in the interior night, where the friend is resting, and who then would keep watch? Me, my ghosts, my land. And what if it were an honor to be waiting in the night, toppled down by time? And what if the dark night heralded radiant gardens? What if the shadow, suddenly crisscrossed by lightning, were to be torn open to reveal the promised day? I am still waiting, 20 years, 20 years as long as sadness itself. And yet, down there on that land that no longer belongs to us, the drums used to murmur. Mouths would whisper hope. Money, money. It is there in that transparent country across the seas, amidst the cars, the candelabras, and the cracked walls. Mouths would say, there's money, millions to be gathered everywhere, with your hands, with your head, with your heart, with your behind. You'd have to look out for yourself. Look out for yourself. Fortune has opened its wings. Exile has begun. I came to this country in the grip of material gain, expelled from my own land by need. I came, we came to this country to save our skin, to buy our children a future. I arrived, we arrived in bundles with a hope as enormous as memory itself, hidden deep in our hearts. And then further on, 
Um, Lukum has always thought that Mom, who is the, the legal wife of Abdu, was his own mother. And he discovers early in the book that neither of the two wives are his mother. That um, Abdu took his son in because his mother, his own mother abandoned him. Abdu is his father. And he has met in the cafe where Abdu hangs out a young woman. The cafe is full of women who are, for the most part, prostitutes. A young woman who takes, uh, takes a fancy to him, to the little boy, and suggests that she teach him how to swim. Um, in this scene, they have just left the swimming pool, and they're taking a walk through a park in the northern part of Paris, the Butte de Chaumont. And Lukum has really never been in a park. He is a street kid, and that's the only thing he knows. We go up a footbridge. On the other side, we end up in front of a pink chalet, a restaurant for the rich people of Paris's 16th arrondissement. Further on, there is a waterfall. And from where we stand, you'd say these were the tears of the sun. Have you done any natural science at school, Mademoiselle Esther asks me. A little, I answered, but I didn't learn all the names of trees, flowers, birds, and all that. That's a willow. This one is a plum tree. And the other one over there is called a pine tree. Can you remember those names? I'll do what I can, Mademoiselle, I answered, but what's for sure is that it's very beautiful and so quiet. Oh, that's only normal. Today is Saturday and everyone is shopping. And soon, as she stops talking, my eyes catch sight of a hat. It is my father's. Anyway, he's making big motions with his hand to attract our kind attention. Dad is dressed to outshine even the sun. He's wearing a candy pink jacket and a white-brimmed beige hat with a dip in the middle, like a Stetson. He's balancing on his feet like a schoolboy who wants to be noticed, and everyone does take notice. Hi. Didn't keep you waiting, I hope. Hi, Mademoiselle Esther answers, speechless with surprise. Me, I'm surprised too, but I say nothing. I'm wondering where he could possibly have found the money to dress so elegantly, which is not exactly in line with our level of family expenditure. My dad, the very one here before me, is not the same anymore. I swear, you wouldn't think this is a guy who works for the sanitation department to keep Paris clean. I look at him, eyes wide with astonishment. He pays no attention to me because he's too busy wooing Mademoiselle Esther. Got to understand and forgive when you can. We had a good time at the pool, Mademoiselle Esther goes. Lukum has a real knack for it. Yeah, goes my dad. Do you want something to drink? I'm not thirsty, she answers. Then we began to walk. My dad took Mademoiselle Esther's hand. They walk hand in hand because they want to be friends. He talks, she giggles. He says dumb things, she giggles. She giggles at no matter what bullshit he delivers and she throws her head back, shows her neck and what's inside her blouse. You're very lovely, Esther. Thank you. You've got a lovely pair, splendid thighs, and your rump, well, it's hot. Thank you. Maybe you don't need me to tell you that with all the many men who surround you. Oh, it's always a pleasure for a girl to hear a man compliment her. It's never too much. She bursts out laughing. True, we are still in the park of the Butte-Chaumont, the most beautiful place in the land, but I no longer see it. The birds are singing. 
I no longer hear them. There's like a ball in my gut. If this continues, I think I'm going to strangle my dad. But there you have it. The Quran forbids that. It says so in black and white. Thou shalt honor thy father, thy mother, whatever happens. I have to leave you, my father says. There you go, I murmur between my teeth. What did you say to Kuhn? My dad asks. Oh, just that I'm sorry. You've got to go so soon, I lie. Oh, my son, oh, my son. He goes all happy. Then he kisses Mademoiselle Esther sweetly on both cheeks. She turns her head to watch him go up the path and signals him with her hand. Then she turns to me. First she smiles. Then she bends over so her face is right at the level of mine and says, You, you're very handsome too and elegant and everything. She ruffles my hair. Then she remains thoughtful for a few moments and says, I wonder how anyone can put up with your father, his wives. How do they manage? You manage to put up with him quite well, Mademoiselle Esther, I retort. How do you do it? Only the good Lord knows. And she burst out laughing. You've got to have a good time every now and then. And for a good time with a guy, there's nothing better than a nigger. It was already dark when we got back to the cafe. There weren't many people there anymore, just Monsieur Guillaume and a few people I didn't know, so I went home. Mom and Sumana were in the kitchen. Sumana was slicing plantains, and Mom was frying them. I took a few to have something to eat, and Sumana asked if we'd gone swimming. I answered that we had, and told them that Mademoiselle Esther had terrific breasts, and that we'd taken a walk in the park with my dad. They looked at each other, and Sumana made a wrong move and cut her finger. No, really, Sumana goes. I'll be damned, Mom says. Do you realize what that means? That's what I was actually doing. And she goes off to bandage her finger. When she comes back, Mom had finished cooking the plantains and they put them on the table. I'm not hungry, says Sumana. You'd better eat something, Mom goes. Not as long as... At that point, she knits her thick eyebrows, then says, Why does the good Lord hate women? He loves us, but he doesn't want to show it. That's why, Mom says. What assholes. Who? The good Lord, men, life, they all stink. You don't really believe that, Sue? Oh, no. That so-and-so would do well not to cross my path or else I'll break his fat face. What's the most shocking to you? That Abdu cheats on you? Or that the good Lord watches without reacting? Both, she retorts. If it makes you feel any better, Abdu had other women when we were going together. He'd disappear for days and nights on end. One day he came back, put me on his lap just like that, and said, forgive me. I don't believe you. I'm telling you, you ought to believe me. He was quite a lady killer at the time. He used to run after anything in his skirt. But he'd always come back. Do you get it? Yeah, but I won't accept him. You'd better accept the reality. No, he's going to have to choose, me or that slut. Mom shakes her head sadly. That was uh, Ireland Diago reading from Cadix Beala. And now we'll go on to Carol Folk, who will be reading from Tara Benjaloun's L'Homme Rompu, or as it will be called here in this country, Corruption. And after that, we will go on to Anikon Solal for our discussion period about why these writers are
attracting all that much attention and uh, what this seems to mean. Carol? Mum Rompu, in fact, means the broken man, just in case, uh, <laughs> uh, but we changed the title. Um, the main character, just to give you a little introduction, is um, the book is set in Casablanca. The main character is an engineer who was educated partly in France and uh, has a number of degrees, um, who works at the Ministry of Develop Development in Morocco, and is in a position to take lots of bribes because he um, basically gives the okay for uh, building projects to, for developers. Um, but he prides himself on his honesty, which he inherited from his father and from his father's father. And so he lives in poverty with his wife and two children, and his wife's not happy about this at all. Um, every, all of his uh, co-workers live well, including his assistant and the errand boy and his boss, and everyone encourages him to be more flexible, as they say. And um, he's at a crisis in his life. In, uh, he's in his early 40s, and he's in a crisis not only because he's starting to waver about um, whether or not he should be so virtuous, but also because his, um, he's starting to think a lot about his cousin, whom he's always been in love with. And he's got a miserable situation with his wife, and so he's questioning that relationship as well. Um, so, the part I'm going to read, uh, it's he, um, his assistant has put a file on his desk and he's supposed to consider this file. And in the file is an envelope with cash. Um, I am still alone in the office. My assistant hasn't returned yet. Perhaps he is leaving me alone on purpose so I can decide. I pick up the envelope again and try to weigh it in my hands. I put it in the inside pocket of my jacket. You can see I'm carrying something bulky. It could be a fat wallet or a bundle of letters. Love letters, for instance. I have always been fascinated by the image of love letters tied up with a ribbon and returned to their sender. Did I write Hlima love letters? And Hlima is his wife. I don't remember, but Nadja, his cousin, is the one I want to write to. I stand up, walk, and feel different. I'm a rich man. A question crosses my mind. Is the 20,000 for me alone, or do I have to share it? I think that the second hypothesis is more plausible. If I do share it, with whom should it be? With Haj Hamid, who's his assistant, the boss, or the shaush, which is the errand boy. The telephone rings. It's the boss asking where Mr. Saban's folder is. I tell him I'm studying it. He hangs up. I feel I'm being pressured. I imagine the worst being caught red-handed, accepting a bribe. I'm arrested, humiliated, thrown to the mercy of my in-laws, my children deprived of the little I can provide for them. What a nightmare. Someone knocks on the door. The shaush brings me a glass of tea and asks for news of my children. It's as if someone alerted him. I thank him, take a sip of tea, remove the packet of money from my pocket, and divide it into two manila envelopes, which I lock in the right-hand drawer of my desk. I sign all the documents without even reading them and ring the buzzer. The shouch com comes quickly. I hand him the folder and ask him to take it to the registration office. I heave a great sigh of relief. It was simple, fast, and uneventful. I've been crazy to burden myself with so many scruples. I've taken the first step. I am no longer the same. I'm becoming a better man. 
I open one of the two envelopes and pull out two blue 200 dirham notes. They're brand new, all clean, and still sm smelling of the printing press. I lock the drawer again and leave my office. It's lunchtime. I take a taxi and tell the driver, Restaurant La Mer in Ain Diab. I've always dreamed of eating seafood in this restaurant. I decide to treat myself to two hours of happiness. It's selfish, but why not? I sit facing the sea. It's a beautiful day, the waves tall and white. I love hearing the sound they make crashing against the cliff. I call the waiter and ask for cigarettes first, gitan, unfiltered, then I order. Despite my small fortune, I read the menu from right to left, from the price to the dish. I make a rapid calculation. A shrimp appetizer, sole meunier, and a creme brulee, 279 dirhams, plus a half bottle of Cabernet and a bottle of Umes mineral water. The whole thing shouldn't come to more than 300 dirhams. I savor every instant. I relax, forget my problems, put aside anything that might spoil these two hours of freedom and pleasure for me. I think of Nadja, of her body. For the first time, I undress her and discover her firm breasts, her flat stomach, and her rounded buttocks. At 38 or 39, she is still very beautiful. It must be the wine. I dare to imagine what I have refused to let myself imagine before. I should drink from time to time. I'm sure it would help me face difficult situations. After a wonderful meal with plenty to drink, I pay the check, leave a tip, and request a taxi. I'm treated like a VIP, like a boss. It's nice. I won't tell anyone about this escapade. I feel light and full at the same time. I ask the driver to go slowly. I don't feel like returning to the office so soon. I have to make the moment last. He suggests a ride along the Corniche. I accept. People are sunning themselves in front of cafes on this early spring day. They're happy, even though the sky is still blue. I think again about the rain that has forgotten us this year and become optimistic, believing the country will pull through. I identify with the country and tell myself that if I come out okay, it too will be saved. At the office, Haj Hamid welcomes me with a big smile. He gets up and comes toward me, his hand extended. I greet him. He waits, then, to convey what he's after, locks the door. I open the drawer and hand him his envelope. He slips it into his briefcase and leaves the office, saying, see you tomorrow. He's off to stash his money. He must have a safe at the bank. I should do the same. If I go from being a poor man to a rich man too suddenly, I'll be noticed right away. <laughs> I have to go slowly, not say anything to Huima. I'll hide the money in, a in the bookcase. I'll put it in a big book, say, Jean-Paul Sartre's Being in Nothingness, <laughs> which I bought at the flea market in the Medina. That way, if I reverse the title and go from nothingness to being, the book will be about me in a sense. No one would think to read this huge tome. I like what he writes about the gaze. At a certain moment, I experience what South says about the waiter in the cafe. I am going through the daily and quasi-mechanical motions of an office worker without imagination and without surprises. I think that from now on, things will change. I take out a brand new pad of paper and on the first page, jot down a few decisions. From now on, I am going to change. I stop and ask myself, how can a 40-year-old man still change? You know it's impossible. You change when you're young, when you're searching for yourself. You don't change at this age. Let's just say it's a resolution I'm making. We'll see what happens later. But change what? My way of walking first. I must walk with my head held high, my back straight, and my hands swinging. If I manage to change that, this aspect of myself, I'll have accomplished something.
In order to walk naturally, you have to be at ease in your clothing. Therefore, I must change my style of dress. I'll wear baggy suits and good shoes. I've often read in magazines that a man's elegance begins with his shoes. Stop being afraid to wear colors. I'm also going to stop smoking. I'll wait for Ramadan to start, stop poisoning my lungs. I will no longer watch television. Instead, I'll read or listen to music. Buy a stereo. I will stop spending weekends at home. I'll take my family to the beach or the mountains. You have to live a little. Buy a car, probably a used one. Eat slowly. Stop eating between meals. Take up a sport, calisthenics or bicycling. Keep a diary. Buy a safe and hide it, along with the money that will fall from the sky. As for Nadja, I must have a talk with her, a serious talk with her soon. I buy a bouquet of flowers, which I plan to leave at Nadja's. If no one is home, I'll give it to Halima. She might ask me embarrassing questions. I don't ordinarily bring flowers home. I'll tell her that the boss gave us a bonus and that I'm celebrating. I feel like a different man. I'm expecting my other voice to intervene at any moment. Strangely enough, it doesn't speak up. I have placed my signature on a document that will allow a man to do his work. I haven't stolen, I haven't taken anything from anyone. I have simply facilitated an action. With 10,000 dirhams, I'll breathe a little easier. I'll settle up with the grocer. Better still, on Sunday, I'll go to the wholesale market and stock up for several weeks. I'll put everything in a Toyota taxi, and the days of credit with interest from the grocer who doesn't even wash will be over. Thank you, Carol. So, three very different books. Um, all of them originally written in French, but from three um, very different authors representing three different types of culture. Uh, Chamoiseau, the former Goncourt Prize winner uh, from Martinique or the Caribbean. Um, Beala, uh, who has not won any major prizes yet, I don't think, but with all the tension she's gotten in, the, in, the re in recent years, certainly seems to be headed in that direction. From the Cameroon or Sub-Saharan Africa, and Taha Benjaloun uh, from Morocco or North Africa. Um, let us go now to Aniko and Salal and see what we can make of what's going on here, whether there is some rhyme or reason to it. And our discussion period, as David Brinkley sometimes likes to say, who knows where this will take us. Um, let me just ask Annie, these new writers who are getting all of this attention, um, is this legitimate? Why is this? And is there a possibility that they are more attractive for our audience here than, than some of the more recent young French writers? Do you mind if I start commenting on the three readings we just heard? Do you mind? No? Are, are you an, an inflexible uh, moderator? Or are you? I think, we should, I think we, all, we should all be okay, able to have a good time. So I want to make a, a comment on the three texts we, we just heard. And then we go back to the more, more general, okay? First of all, I think the, the, the translations are beautiful. First of all, I think that it's extremely difficult, as you explained before, to capture into English the complexity of the fact that each of these writers has handled French language in a different way. Uh, because it's a complex situation. You write in the language of the domineering culture, but the whole movement is a movement of emancipation. So it's a complex movement that you have to, that is involved in the writing. And you have to feel it through the translation. And I really want to congratulate each, each of them because I never felt, uh, I mean, I felt that you managed to transmit 
lots of things. One of them being humor, distance with the role. The second thing of the common point between this, why are you laughing? You don't agree with me? I am agreeing with you. I'm laughing because it's so, it was so well put. It's absolutely true. Then, <laughs> then the second thing, what, uh, what you managed to, to, to transmit was also that each text uh, has a way to discuss oral, I mean, to discuss, um, to put into writing um, the handling, the tradition of handling oral stories. So there are cultures where the tradition was telling stories because you didn't write that much, but it was storytelling. Uh, and remember, Tar Benjeloun did a book called L'écrivain public, you know, the, the public writer, where people used to go to a writer in the village on the, on the square to ask him to write a letter to, I mean, write a letter because people were illiterate. So we're talking about cultures where illiteracy was there a few years ahead, ago. And Tar Benjelun's own mother is illiterate. And what he says most of the time, he says, I'm writing, I'm not writing in my mother tongue. I'm writing in a tongue that, in, in a language that my mother cannot understand. Which, make, which is extremely important. So it's handling a culture. I mean, it's handling a language which not only your own family cannot understand or cannot handle and, and doing a job that your family cannot read, but also in the, you're writing in the language of the people who colonized you. So it's, it's very tricky. So that's why the complexity of these writings have to be transmitted into... But I thought the three texts was, were very funny where I mean, and no matter, no, no wonder that um, Calix Bayala, for example, Bayala, for example, is compared to Queneau um, or to people like that, because you know it's a handling of French oral language that nobody else can do these days in French. The Franco-French writers, as I call them, you know, they cannot do that. But here we deal with people who are, you know, you maybe you saw this gorgeous movie from uh, Martinique called Rue Casnegre. Uh, yes, how do you say? Yes. Sugar Canal. It's a it's a story about a little boy who's uh, going to school and in Martinique. And the movie has been made by Eusanne um, Palsy. She just made a movie on Emile Césaire, and it's a, it's a beautiful movie. And it's a whole it's a whole same story. So that's the comments I wanted to to make on the on the, on the text we just heard. Now, your question was what I forgot. Well, why are you sticking to it? Or oh yes, absolutely. Are you? Uh, there, there there may be others also. Um, the, these people have attracted a lot of attention and in some cases more attention than other younger oh, yeah. uh, French yes. writers of their own ages um, why, in particular, why in particular is this and can this translate to this country in terms of their finding a larger audience here yes. than, than yes. other yes. French yes. writers yeah. Yeah. I think basically it's a trend of literature globally in the world now I think that the main, the main important writers internationally are the writers who experienced uh, the colonization of a dominant culture and who worked these tensions. I mean, there are many, many in the world. I mean, let's talk about people from India, people from South Africa, people from Indonesia, people from Australia, people from, you know, Africa. I mean, the previous colonized people, there are masses of them. And basically, I think that, I remember there was an article in Time Magazine, actually it was the international issue of Time Magazine, and the cover 
Uh, it was like two years ago. The cover was called The Empire Writes Back. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> so it was explaining that the most prominent emerging writers were the writers who had experienced this, this tricky tension between a dominant culture and their own culture. And people who were handling these, uh, these powers uh, in, a, in a positive way. One of them also be do, being the, the, you know, the Japanese writer living in London, the one who did the Remains of the Day. What's his, what's his name, Tony? Remember? Tash, uh, okay, Shiguro, exactly, exactly. So he was part of that. So these, and we all know, you know, you translator, you live in too many languages, you know, and <laughs> so you all know that. And it seems to be uh, uh, globally a key for the emerging new interesting literature. Uh, with the case of France, France, as you know, has had one of the biggest empire, possible empire in the 19th century, and also very strong poli poli policy of domination. And French language was universal, and French culture was the best, and the Arabs had to learn French, and everybody had to speak French, and everybody, everybody was happy, and the Gaulle was happy, and, and France was a big country from Dunkerque to Tamanrasset, and everybody was together, and that was good life. Absolutely not. In case it was, it was a joke. It was actually a terrible, terrible oppression, and um, and and uh, you see the state of Algeria today. But basically, the the this politics of uh, cultural domination of the French Empire is writing back now. I mean, the, the Empire writes back more in France than anywhere else, because the French have these huge uh, colonies and this and this strong politics of of. Uh, of, of cultural uh, domination. I am one example. <laughs> I'm a Jew from North Africa, having been colonized by the French and having, having been told that I, my family was French, which was a lie. And I, I had to become 20 years old to read Franz Fanon and learn that the Jews had been in Algeria in, before Jesus Christ. And I knew it as a, as a kid, as a little girl. I, I felt it. So basically, uh, uh, then my, my best friends in French uh, liter literary world were Tarb and Jaloun and so far and all the other ones. And no wonder why, because we have the same way of handling uh, French culture and French language. So um, one of the other things about these emerging cultures from previous colonized people are that it's not only through literature that it's expressing itself, these people, through music, through playwrights, through movies, you know, and it's a whole body of new culture which is essential today. And I think that uh, we know, you know, in France we had elections recently. I don't know if you heard about them. We heard about them. But uh, it, together, Monsieur Le Pen plus the other right-wing guy, they're making 20% of the votes. And these, so in France, one man on five, when you walk in the street, wants foreign people out. So it's a country where there's a lot of racism. And uh, but basically, uh, I think that in America the handling of multiculturalism or the, there's much more space for uh, uh, genuine cultures than there is in France, yeah, where Monsieur Le Pen has one simple thing. He says, I love my sister, I love my daughter more than my cousin. I love my cousin more than my neighbors and I love my neighbors more, more than, you know. So that's very simple. Basically, whenever he can, he kills an Arab around, you know. So that's that's what France is going through. But uh, so, but what I what I want to to stress on that is the legitimation, legitimization of 
border writers, bo writers from the borders, writers who, who, who had to integrate these tensions. This legitimization is, is, a, is a very important symptom. It is a, yeah. a key which shows how much French society has changed no matter what Monsieur Le Pen wants or not. Uh, there's also an, an extraordinary mo um, I mean, book called The Tay in the Harem of Archie Ahmed. Did you, it's a movie, it was turned into, into the movie called The Tay in the Harem, in the harem yeah. which is an extraordinary movie. How the, these guys from North Africa, these kids from North Africa, are totally reinventing the culture of the French suburbs around Paris or around the big cities and in, in a great way. So no matter what, they are emerging in France. Um, that's more or less... Uh, the you made a, an interesting point about uh, oppression and, and, and even terror. Um, let me use that as a stepping off point to ask uh, Marilyn de Yagara a question. You worked in the past on the V.Y. Mudimbe, who said in an interview that all of his books were about well, violence and death. How would you contrast his subject matter with subject matter that Cadiz Bayala uh, tends to work in? Are they very different? I mean, uh, Mudimbe coming from the Belgian Congo, uh, that is certainly a country that has had more than its share of violence and terror. The same isn't true to the certain to the same extent of, of Cameroon. But how does she deal with with her with her themes? No, sorry, um, you're right. I think with the differences that with Mudimbe, the, the violence and death comes out of philosophical and political background. His own life is very has been led very politically. Um, I believe Bayala has just as much violence and death in her, but it is also from a feminist point of view. Uh, it's, she does also come back to politics, but politics as run by men, it really is always the dichotomy and the opposition of men-women. Uh, this actually, of the books that I know of her, and I know five of the seven, uh, is the, the only one, almost, I can say, that it has real humor in I think the others, especially the first two, are so unbelievably dark and down. And it's all about the violence that men perpetrate against women. So it's there, but differently. Um, it also occurred to me that um, along the same lines, um, Carl Volk, working from um, the culture of North Africa, so to speak, uh, you did. Uh, you translated Olivier Roy's uh, book, *The Failure of Political Islam*, which was published here last year by Harvard University Press. Um, what do you find in Benjamin's work um, that really conveys the aspects of Islam, both positive and negative aspects? Is there is there violence involved with that, or or, or is there not? Well, I find that a lot of what he's writing about, in fact, is. Um hypocrisy uh, within Islam and uh, within uh, not necessarily going so far as neo-fundamentalists but just very flamboyantly uh, devout Islam like his um, Muslims like his um, his assistant who, who was mentioned in the, the piece that I read who comes in who, you know, despite that he um, despite that he takes bribes and is getting rich illegally and despite the fact that uh, he um, has a bachelor pad where he takes girls from the high school, uh, you know, comes into work once a week dressed in white and makes a big point of going to the mosque. 
um, there's also at the end uh, about, uh, mentioned about the grocer um, who charges interest on the credit that he gives, which is also illegal in Islam. So um, there's a lot of ways in which he's sort of pointing up hypocrisy, and as well as sort of uh, the drive toward Western materialism, I would say. Um, but uh, I could also add that uh, some of the bribes that he gets are that he's been offered that he never accepted um, when he lists them are a lamb for the festival of sacrifice or um, a plane ticket to Mecca, things like that. Uh, Linda Coverdale, in your work on Shemwezo, um is there any way that you've had to alter your approach to lingu linguistics to deal with any Caribbean themes or cultural background? Uh, are there specific differences in language and expression between uh, between what he does and what other people uh, do, who who are not who are say just French French? who actually goes, excuse me, goes out and tries to find the old Creole storytellers who are still able to speak for him, speak into his, his, uh, his um, tape recorders. He, he collects the way they speak, what they speak of. He collects the vocabulary. He collects their, their hand movements. He listens for the tone of their voice. And he treats their oral art as a form of theater and then attempts in a modest way but very, very consciously to put this on the page. And this attempt to put oral language on the page is a constant theme in all his, his work. So that if you are going to translate Chamazo, you end up practically, well, any translator does this, I think. You read it out loud to yourself. You read it in your head, you read it, you listen to the way it sounds, because it will do you no good at all if you have the information in the text on the page in a way so flat that it looks like styrofoam. It's not going to work. It has to be read. You have to hear it. It has to scan in your mind. So <laughs> there is really no difference between translating Chamozo and anyone else, except that you have to be able to listen very closely and know behind the French, what he's referring to in, uh, in, in his culture of Martinique in the background of, of the Caribbean. He will, I always think that an author tells you what the author wants to say. The author has written it. The author did not send you a disquette. The author is, is not appearing you know, with, with a sign card on saying, I was born in this. You have it all, in a way, in the book. And if you know how to read, you will know where you need to go further 
you will know where you need to do some research. Because it's all very well for him to say in the introduction, well, I didn't put a glossary at the end of my book. You know, ha, ha, ha. Let the magic of the words work on you. Well, it's true. You should. You better believe that with the French, I went all over the place scouring up dictionaries to find out what he meant. Because even if I ended up leaving the word in the Creole, I needed to know what it meant because it resonates all through the story. And sometimes one simple word, so for example, the word lavalas, which means in Creole, uh, uh, like an averse in French, it's a, a downpour, a, a kind of avalanche of water, a flood. It's also the form of a large garment. It's also the word that became the watchword of, uh, of the new Haiti. I mean, it's, it's the voice of the people. It's lap. So you need to know these things so that at times you can read something precisely alone or so that you can use the resonance to help skew how else you will be translated. You need to find out everything you can, but always, always it will come back to trying to serve the, the voice of the text. It has to be musical. It has to be something that would keep the audience because very specifically the oral art of the Creole storyteller is back and forth between the, between the audience. And if you see, if you have seen the film Sugarcane Alley, you'll notice that the, when there's death, they don't sit hushed. They don't, they don't. They bring out the drums. They bring out the rum. They light the candles. And the first thing that happens is the storyteller comes. They applaud him and he emerges and the first thing he says is a click. What does that mean? A click. And the audience goes, a click. We're here. He said, are you listening? We're listening. And back and forth. And yeah, and, and as he goes through the story and, and satirically praises the dead person who's lying there, saying, aha, he was a stingy man, and this, and that, back and forth, saying, you with me? We're with you. We're here. It's nonsense, but that's, but that's what he wants. You listen to the sound, listen to the voice, and stay with me. So, here we are. Voila. <laughs> it occurs to me that all three of these... Um, cultures have a very strong element of the oral um, to them, the, the storyteller. Um, Annie, let me ask you, you mentioned in the conversation we had that there's a very strong link between uh, the North African writing and the Caribbean uh, in terms of telling a story, in terms of the oral tradition. How is that? I mean, in Africa, too. Yeah, in Sub-Saharan African, too. Yes. Uh, what, do you, what do you want me to say? Well, the, the the links in, for example, oh, yeah. storytelling between between the three cultures, the oral type of thing. I mean, this is uh, this is something which has been uh, described many many times by some um, one uh, one essayist, one journalist from uh, Guadeloupe, from the French West Indies, called Daniel Maximin. He says, uh, "We are cousins. The the Caribbean Sea, the Sea of Hadipoli, the Caribbean Sea." And the Mediterranean Sea uh, are like, you know, together. And the culture of North Africa and the culture of the West Indies is we are, we are, we are the same. Uh, let me tell you a very interesting uh, anecdote which uh, happened here in New York uh, three years ago. I, I forced our Benjamin to come.
one of the books were being translated. And, uh, and next door to me uh, for four years was living this gorgeous actress and wonderful human being called Cicely Tyson, born in Nevis, and who was my closest friend. And I knew that Cicely had started her whole career in the 60s at the Saint-Marc Theater in, uh, in the village with a play by Jean Genet called Les Negres. And that's how she started her whole career, being launched by this play, by this playwright, and by this extraordinary talent of Jean Genet to be in between poetics and politics and cultures and things. On the other hand, when Taha Benjeloun's first book was published, he was reviewed and Taha was a nobody, a, a teacher in a teacher philosophy from Morocco. And the book was reviewed in Le Monde, which is the epitome of the review. And the review was signed by Jean Genet. And Jean Genet adored the book and asked um, Taha to come and meet with him. And uh, Taha started to say, well, you know, I'll, Jean Genet said, no, don't say a word about my books. I'm not interested about my works. I'm interested by you. So the, the, the great friendship between Genet and Tahar Benjamin took place. So here I was, welcoming Tahar Benjamin in New York with his non-English, but his, his godfather in literature being Jean Genet. And here I had Cicely Tyson, who is French, French is zero, and who had Jean Genet as a godfather too in her whole career. The two guys, the, her and him, spent a whole evening talking to each other with words invented. I, I mean, it was mystery to me, it was magical, it was moving, it was beautiful. It was absolutely fantastic. The two, I left the room, I just couldn't stand it. I mean, they adored each other, and I, I remember one day, the next day, she said, you know, but he's a fantastic guy. And I said, well, you know, I'd love you to know what he writes. I'm going to read, okay? And so he, Am, am I allowed? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So I'm getting out of my role here, right? Yeah, yeah. No. So she, I said to her, but I'd love you to, to, to understand what he does and what he, because you know, the whole thing had to do with Jean Genet. And the next morning, she sat on my, on my couch, 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 thank you. I mean, I'm really lucky to have these three girls here. It's the best, you know, they help. And, um, and, and, um, and I, I started to read to her the book from him, I like the most, which is a, po a book of poems. You have to translate that, my dear. Called Les Amandiers sont morts de leurs blessures. The, the almond trees have died from their own wounds. Would you do that? Which is, for me, a gorgeous book, uh, written in 1976. And I started to take this text and translate it like, like that to Cicely. And the tears were pouring of her eyes. And she said, I want to say this text publicly. You know, and so basically, Tar Benjeloun is going to be invited as a visiting professor at NYU next fall. I mean, I'd love to, to have him at Penn coming over here. And Cecily Tyson is ready to, you know, to make a whole reading of his poem. Isn't it wonderful? Hmm. So the whole text, I mean, do you want a few lines or not? Do you want a, a few lines of this text? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's just very small. Um, in English, right? Uh, it's a letter from a, from a, from a, a Palestinian woman to her son. My son, the day has stopped in my wrinkles since their <clears throat> bloody engine has passed over our house. 
I read from the French, okay, and I translate from the French, so you have to be, I apologize. Uh, this is, it is formidable, this immense car which opened its mouth to suck the little which is left from us, a piece of land, a deck, and three almond trees. This is an engine which makes lots of noise, shines in the sun, and bursts into laughs when it triumphs, when it gets its triumph from this little, this small little wild, wild and fragile flowers which try to stand up again. I saw its teeth all yellow from the blood of the earth break, break on, a, on a bunch of, of sand. Um, a slight wind has taken away the roots of the tree. The sky came down and picked them up. I even think that they live on a little cloud which cannot leave us since we are without a deck, without a country. Your little brother has run after us to, to save from the dust your books, your school books. We were scared. This engine almost killed them, swallowed them. Wounded in our, in our earth, humiliated in our trees, we were there, all three of us, totally stuck and inhabited by a sudden death. A part of us, I think the biggest one, was dead. They took it out from us, very naturally, at dawn. We remained peaceful. They opened our wounds and we drank our deaths. It has the taste of, comment dit la sève? Of this, they have, it has this, the taste of, the sa of sap. Your mother said it has a taste of jasmine. The sky opened when the orphan bird called and we saw a body of light all covered with new blood. The sun was shaking that day and the cold injustice was digging its it's son sillon. Sillon, and the cold injustice was digging its furs into our, our earth, into our body. Basically, that's, that's the beginning. So just to see this, this, the strength of this text and how it, it made an impact. Of, so I wanted to tell you this story because just to show you the link between two artists who had no way of communicating but who were linked through this extraordinary poet, Jean Genet, and who, and, and, and it's, I think there's nothing else in life to do. With it. I, mean, I mean, having people like that uh, meeting and, and, and communicating. Um, the, you're right, and I think sometimes this happens more easily in uh, urban settings. Uh, all three of these writers have uh, done a lot of work uh, within, in their told a lot of stories in their books about uh, tremendously dense cities. Chamazo did it in his Gonco winning book, Texaco, uh, Le Petit Prince de Belleville, it's the obvious thing. Um, let me go back along the table and ask Carl Volk. Um, this new novel uh, of Ben Jeloun, L'Homme Rompure, Corruption as they're calling it here, is set in Casablanca. 
his earlier books tended to be set in more rural areas. Um, how is this more sort of, a, of, a, of an urban novel from some of the others that you've looked at and noticed? I mean, what are the themes? Are the themes different at all? Well, um, this is actually a question that I would like to ask Annie because uh, I noticed in reading his other books that there's a huge, I mean, there's, he has a La Nuit Sacrée, The Sacred Night, which won the Prix Goncourt, The Sand Child, and uh, several others that they are set in rural settings and they're, they rely heavily on, uh, they're in very influenced by traditions of storytelling and myth and legend and all sorts of fantastical things happen. And um, the book that I translated, uh, as well as another book that I found that wasn't published here, uh, State of, called State of Absence in English, published in England, um, are set in cities and are about corruption and seem and although certain fantastical things happen, um, the writing, in a way, is less is 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 much sparer and uh, less poetic. I mean, not in a bad sense, but just much sparer. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was just something I noticed that, um, in a way, the these knuckles? seem like more political, even though they're still drawing on. Um, in with, in, even though they're still drawing to some extent on fantastical and, and, the, and the sort of local myths. So you mean that in his novels? Well, well, some of the novels fit, fall into one camp and some fall into another. That's true. That's true. He has, I think he has a wide range of uh, writings. Yeah. Uh, I think also you, don't, you, don't, you didn't mention, but you could have mentioned his journalistic essays. Uh -huh. He's an, a great uh, inquirer. He did a whole series of uh, stories on Mecca in, in, in the moon. You know, the, like it was 20, 20, 20 days in a row, in a pilgrimage to Mecca. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous reportage. And I remember also a piece, a little piece in Le Monde, about the boring, the boredom of the city of Lausanne in, in, in Switzerland, which is <laughs> a city you just don't want to get near. It's a disaster, I mean. Anybody's from, but anyway, it was a very funny and very perceptive piece. It was gorgeous. I think Taha has many, many talents. Yeah. My 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 choice is basically I like his poetry and his journalistic essays better than anything else, better than his novels yet. And I told him uh, so. Uh, and I mean, he had more political novels. You remember the one called like Reclusion Perpetuelle? Mm -hmm. No. I mean, he's, he's got a huge range of stuff. Yeah. He's extremely gifted. He's incredible. <coughs> Marilyn, uh, how does Bayala deal with uh, the city? Does he really give you a feeling of, of the way the city is around this character? Does that really come through? In Le Petit Prince, it does because it, it, he spent so much time as a little kid who goes to school and comes home, but in between uh, is on the streets a lot. I think more so than in her first two novels, which at this point I'm much closer to because I just finished translating one and I'm in the middle of the, this, the other one. Although, even though cities aren't mentioned, um, a few scenes take place in busy streets, but it's primarily the fact that in both cases the women live in the shanty towns 
poverty, the crowdedness, the always being on top of each other and never seeing fresh air and beautiful things, sure. which you see in this scene with Petit Mlita, little Lukum, who, although he lives in Paris, has never really been to any of the parks. And that sense of the, the crowdedness of the poor is there a lot. It occurs to me that I should ask a, a sinister, evil question. Um, and it has to do with contrasting these writers who have gotten a lot of attention in recent years with some of the writers of our own who get a lot of attention. Um, and let me go back once again to Annie. Um, in the past, in this country, for example, we've seen books that have gotten huge review attention um, that no one seems to have read. I mean, the two obvious uh, examples that come to my mind are Harlot's Ghost by Mailer and Gravity's Rainbow by Pynchon um, that everybody talked about and then when you really asked them, well, they didn't quite get through it. And, well, they got it maybe up to page. So books that got a lot of attention but nobody really read. Do you think these books, Annie, are actually being read in France by readers or are they just being talked about by reviewers? I mean, definitely they're being read. I mean, there's no question about it. Most, for example, most of the intelligent journalists for, the, for these days in France, whatever, in television, radio, and the press, reading press, are from these groups of, you know, either the Burr or the North African or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a big body of young, brilliant uh, journalists who are all from these, uh, the same, uh, the same uh, cultural background. So, and they're exactly the people who can transmit. So they are the same way that Genet helped this Tahar and Cecily emerged. Now, the other way around, these young journalists are helping spreading the voice that a new group is emerging, you know, so they're being read. <laughs> do, do you think, um, well... Not by Le Pen, but <laughs> by the, the, four, the four other French remaining. Well, maybe perhaps not by either of the three candidates. I don't know. Um, the Let's go back once again to, not to belabor a point, but to the, the African link. Um, I'd like to ask Linda, much Caribbean culture traces, in fact, back to Africa, but what, what African influences do you see in the Creole folk, folk tales that, are really, that really just just throw themselves at you when you look through them? if I answer the last three questions in one here. You, you asked uh, about the city, and you asked about whether or not people do read these books, and the influence of Africa. So uh, how about if I mention Texaco? Mm -hmm. Texaco is about as big as a brick. You could use it as a doorstop. It won the mm -hmm. Goncourt. And it is, in many ways, some people think, not as good a book as some of his earlier work, mm -hmm. simply because the earlier books were slim, densely poetic, extremely lively, had, had overwhelming emotional impact, were of a narrative nature, a fragmentary uh, uh, narratives that included rhymes, uh, prose poems, monologues. I mean, to read uh, a book by Chamoiseau, for example, Sodibo Magnifique, which is the story of a conteur, <coughs> A teller of tales whose name is Solibo, and the whole the whole book is, is amazing. It's Solibo dies suddenly, and he is literally strangled from within by his words. 
he dies on a night of carnival. He has his buddies and cronies around him. The police arrive. All sorts of farcical shenanigans ensue. People are murdered. People die. It turns into a kind of horrific comedy, murder mystery, tragedy. What killed Sodibo? And it's actually all an investigation into the dying word of, of the Creole language and how it may yet manage to survive. Texaco deals with many of these um, same themes. In his, I think his first novel was Chronique des Sept Misères, which is an explosion inside two covers. It's got about 90 different little stories in it. Sometimes the story is within parentheses, within brackets, within someone else's story that's being told to someone else because you're getting the picture. So the, the, the themes of, of dispossession, of loss of identity, of helplessness, of rage, of attempts to creatively overcome those things that have left you completely bereft and helpless and at the mercy of others. All these themes come back in Texaco, but in a much more uh, laborious way. Well, there are people who said he was trying to do too much in Texaco. There was just yeah, too well, he, he was far writing, too Yeah, he was writing the history of Martinique in a way, yeah. starting yeah. from going back in time, starting from the slaves, bringing them up, and the whole movement is, in fact, toward the city because Texaco is a slum on the outside of Port de France, the, the capital of, uh, of Martinique. And he goes back in time and shows you the slave plantations, gives you the, the emancipation, the eruption of Mount Pele, destruction of them. And, and find Linda, may I interrupt? Sure. It's just also to mention that Chamoiseau used to be a social worker. Yeah. So his real job was to deal with the, with the social work and to deal with these people. So he got the picture. He's before. a chef, chef. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he broiled all this up into Texaco, which is the name of a shantytown slum, which one of the, the, the heroines of the book herself found on the outside of, of uh, Fort de France. It's an old uh, gas dump with tanks. And these people have nowhere to go. They start a city. The, the movement from the country to the city is in involved in the whole history of, of Martinique. And you would think, for example, it, it's a very paradoxical situation. Usually you think, ah, the city, enlightenment, progress, happiness, money, everyone will be happy. No. The city in, in the works of, of Chamazot and often in the works of other Korean writers, is, it's paradox. It's like a zombie. It's alive. There's nothing else. You can't earn a living on the land. And yet when you come to the city, you're on a little island, the economy is falling apart. You have, you have within your hands almost nothing that holds up. When you search for your identity as a, as a citizen, a native of Guadeloupe, of Martinique, in many ways, you're looking at a gaping void. So that the city, which represents in so many other ways uh, a kind of culmination of civilization, represents in a way, in the Caribbean writing, a kind of hollow shell, because it's, it's in a way the culmination of everything that has been lost. It's a massive facade and it's empty. Of course, that's not the whole truth, but this is one way in which the city functions. And in this sense, Africa figures, when you ask what's, what's from Africa, 
instead of saying something like, well, this word comes from Daomei and this and that and the other, I think it's simplest to deal with the big question, what does Africa mean in this literature? What, when someone surfaces from Africa, when you have a word from Africa, what does it mean? And these people are very deliberate when they use these references. For example, in Solibo Magnifique, there is uh, a very black man, an old man, a field hand, his name is Congo. Congo used to be a derogative term for a field hand. They came over from, they were Bantus, very black. Everyone spoke of them as Congo, a very derivative term, a very derogative term. Congo, who hardly speaks, he's not a man of words, represents in a way still that link with Africa, very specific link with Africa, because his father was brought over as a slave after uh, not as, as uh, after the first bringing in of slaves, he was a, a new slave. And this man represents a link with Africa, naked as he is in one scene of, of the novel and beaten by the French, he is yet perhaps the most honest man of the whole book. He is literally murdered by the police precisely because these Frenchified black men cannot bear to see the face of their ancestry. And in so in instead of embracing him and listening to him when he tells the truth in his halting way, they beat him to death. And he ends up throwing himself out of a window because he cannot face it anymore. And yet, the police prefect finally begins to understand the truth that there was no murder of Solibo. The man was not murdered. He was, in fact, mysteriously choked by his own words. He goes in the company of Chamozo, who figures in the novel, to look for the truth from a camboiseur, a kind of sorcerer, who speaks, and Chamozo says specifically, with very old Creole, with words from Africa, and tells him that that was the truth. Life is not what it should be, and the man of words could not live anymore and choked really choked himself to death. And the authenticity of these ancient words from Africa that made their way into Creole figures as a kind of magic talisman in the book. So I would say that it's in large touches, little touches, illusions. When you see Africa, it is always this double sense of what we lost and yet heartrendingly what we can't have anymore, because you can't go back. You can't, in a, in a way, sometimes these Africans figure as zombies. And there's even, in one of his books, he even has a zombie, Afukal, who comes up out of the earth and he's talking with uh, a young man and he says, oh, we'll go home to Africa. And the zombie looks down and says, where's that? Uh -huh. You can't do it. But some it's, it's this double, double face yeah. that is constantly played yeah. in the text. Although some of these writers, um, have spent large periods of time out of their native lands. I mean, uh, uh, Benjadoun has lived for years in Paris. Chamoiseau uh, has spent time in Paris, I believe. Beata has spent time in Paris and London, has she not? Um, in Paris. Um, in what have, can anybody here sense that any of these writers are starting to lose their, their true ethnic identities through Europeanization or not at all? I mean, it's very simple. I mean, uh, theorists in, uh, in culture say that uh, the norms of identification are imagined, wa imagi the ones you imagine. 
So basically, there's nothing more than that, you know. I mean, you can make up your own past. You can make up your own cultural roots. It's your own choice. So what, is it, what does it matter that they live in Paris, you know? The whole thing is how they would use their, the myth of their roots, the cultural roots. So. Does, um I think in the case of Benjaloon, he's describing very specifically the situation of the, you know, the Frenchified Moroccan. So, um, you know, he, he's he's true to himself in a way, in in the sense. I mean, it, at least in in corruption. Um, I was also wondering, though, um, when you were talking about words, um, the and and when uh, Annie was talking about the. Um, the sort of writing in the the colonizer's language. I mean, when you're when Benjaloon is writing in French, obviously, and um, when he uses Arabic words, he often sort of describes what they mean. Sometimes he doesn't, but most often he does. And um, I mean, what does it mean, in a sense, to be writing in French? And there, there's like an automatic translation happening already, just by the fact that he's writing in French, but of an Arabic culture. And um, and is he writing mostly for French people? Or oh, that's a, that's a, another another panel. Okay, when next week, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really he's been he's been sometimes criticized uh, that he's been turned into a, a French mm-hmm. uh, a French who knows little it's from like Morocco. But that's a whole. Is- you can ask him when yeah. he comes. It's a whole issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that in the case you mentioned both Modimbi and Beala who had lived in, uh, Beala has lived in Paris now for 17 years, and she left Cameroon when she was 17 <coughs> years old. Um, she spent one year back in, in Cameroon from 91 to 92. But, and, and uh, Mudimbe has been here now, what, 12 years, 10 years, something like that, and studied in Europe, in Belgium, in France, uh, at the Vatican, he started out as a priest. Uh, it seems to me, at least with these two writers, that the longer they spend abroad, the more African they become. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is that opposition. They're constantly faced with the other, which some of them write with a, a capital O, that where they have to prove that they really are who they are, that there is a tradition, there is a history, there is a culture. Mm-hmm. And I think it becomes stronger and stronger, which you see in their works, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me ask one last question, and then maybe we can take a couple of, if everybody wants to, we can take a couple of questions from the, the audience. And one last question is uh, whether any of the folks here can think of any other writers who, this is a terrible question, but I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, for everybody, usually for everybody who's published who's, who is good, there might be somebody else who's just about as good who doesn't get a chance. Um, the four ladies sitting here, can either of them, can any of them think of somebody who is just about as good as the person they've just finished working on, who they think deserves more notice, who comes out of the same cultural background? As I said, it's a terrible question. You know, Marine Diaye, she's from Senegal, I think. I mean, there are many. Marine Diaye, yeah, she's... Yeah, right. I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, I like the I think leaking is great, but she is being translated. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
No, I was just thinking of a generic pronouncement. <laughs> send all these books to publishers, and then they will send them to us, and then we can send them to you. <laughs> it's an excellent concept. Huh? Um, does, does anybody in the audience have any questions they would like to ask of these folks? Now that we're all warmed up. Listening to this, uh, the discussion, I was uh, remembered that the first uh, um, <coughs> francophone uh, novelist uh, who won the Prix Goncourt turned out to be a Lithuanian uh, Jew who became a Frenchman, who later became something of an, of an American, Ronin Gary, <laughs> who wrote The Life Before Us, uh, which uh, uh, and certainly Romain Gary didn't come from any culture that had been uh, colonized by France. Um, and as I said, he became something of, of an American. Um, and America all along, I mean, for the past hundred years, has had a growing and vibrant uh, 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 literature, growing literature of people whose roots originally were from abroad. Uh, and even black American literature comes is in its own way a kind of an immigrant literature where which has risen since the migration uh, of, from, of, of black Americans from the rural south uh, to the Midwest uh, and, and, and the cities. And I was just wondering, I mean, there's, there's not a one-to-one -one parallel here, that's for sure. But I was just wondering, since the translators here are translating for an American audience, uh, whether there's any of this sensibility or the sensibility of American, call it ethnic literature, in English that you've uh, brought to your translations or uh, a vocabulary that informed your work uh, whether or not there's any kind of uh, voice or, or influence that you had in mind when you were working as translators, uh, since you are writing in an in an American context, you have a, a the <coughs> colonized French context, you have the French language context, and now you have an American English context. And I was just one of if you could comment uh, or have any thoughts about that. Um, I don't actually have any thoughts regarding this book in particular, but I, uh, uh, the book was published last year by Robert Bobert, The Croix de Neuf sur la Guerre, you know, uh -huh. um, which takes place in sort of uh, mostly among Polish Jewish immigrants to Paris and um, in the sort of garment district of Paris, sweatshops, and it seemed very appropriate that a New York Jew would translate this book, <laughs> and that it would have that that it would have a similar resonance. It seemed like a strange. Uh, it was the first time I'd read anything in French that really seemed to have an almost New York flavor, um, but unfortunately, it's being translated in London. <laughs> so <laughs> much for that. Yeah. But, 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 but
not sure that uh, I grasp the kernel of your question. Were you asking if we were thinking of specific, of a cultural context, or of specific kinds of language with which to match up these perhaps disparate voices? Both. I mean, uh, if you're writing for an, an American readership, uh, you have to, you're looking for words, I think, and, uh, and the tone, whatever, yeah. uh, that, that fits into what mm -hmm. the word that's used to say is uh, a native, mm. that fits into yeah. something recognizable. You know, that's, that's always an individual problem. I don't think you can make generalizations about it because sometimes, for example, you might think, uh, I remember uh, this was 10 years ago, Carcanet was considering the Chronique des Sept Misères and it was sent to me for a re-report and I turned inside out. I thought this book is the greatest thing since, well, it's better than sliced cheese, which is awful. This is a wonderful book. I mean, I get so much junk. This book is fantastic. I wrote this ready reader report and oh, you must have this book. And fine, well, if we buy it, will you translate it? Ah, well, words choke me. I don't know what I would say now, but at the time, I had to say, you know, I, I'd love to, to tackle the French French, because it was very elegant and, and figurative and alive. But there was a lot of dialogue, as I recall. And it, I said in the report, it would not be a question of going to a dictionary and finding out what this fruit is, what this bird is, because there is a, there is a, a grammar of island English and I'm talking about English now, not just the island. French was there to see. But to translate it, you would have to decide, am I going to put it in island English? And if you did that, which would give it some authenticity, yet you would have to tone down the Englishness of the English so that you would be touching, you would be touching and feeling your way through something, trying to give it an island lilt without making it sound as though you're in the Bahamas. And this sort of thing happens all the time. It's, it's always an individual case. Uh, how much can you get through? How much must you regretfully give up? And then sometimes you find something that's just perfect. You can find a word in American English that comes from the Caribbean and you've got something. You can you know, nail that down there. But the context is, of course, I mean, how could you get more multicultural, say, than, than the Caribbean? I mean, they had everything in the world there, and they still do. Indians, Portuguese, British, Lord knows the British. All, all nations there, and, and that's in fact one of the, the standards of, line them up, that one of the standards of, of the younger Creole writers, that we are the future. Don't, don't look at us and say, eh, little island, nowhere, they're right. No, no, they say, we are the future. The earth gets smaller every day, people move faster every day. To bring order out of chaos, you need a, a sense of community, a world community. And that's what we are in microcosm. It's the, the Creole voice is, in a way, an amalgamation, a voice that says, we've come through hell, and we're still here. And in a way, it's the, the American audience is ready for anything. You find the words, they'll read them. Buy the book, I hope. Especially in The uh, Little Prince of Belleville, I found it very helpful that I'm a high school teacher of inner city kids. <laughs> that dialogue really helped. And it's being published in, in England. And I've had some arguments, well, not, not arguments, but I had to convince them that certain things that they changed because it was too American really had to stay in because this was either going to be an American translation or they should have gotten themselves a British translator. 
but you can bridge that gap. I tried to convince them by saying, Lukum lives in Paris and speaks Parisian French, not a mixture of Parisian and Quebecois French. Mm -hmm. So make up your minds. <laughs> and I hope they'll do that. I think we have another question out there. I think there's one slight difference. Uh, the reason why English has supplanted, and with all due honor to French, the reason why English has supplanted French as the diplomatic language of the world and the language where you go to darkest whatever, you're up on the hills of Tibet, you'll hear English, is because it eats everything. It is omnivorous. It will take words from anywhere, which is what the, the French of Rabelais used to do. But then, of course, French got a little more soigné, and uh, it's no longer quite so, so welcoming, although I think the doors are being forced by all these new writers. But you'll run into a very strange phenomenon. For example, when, when I was translating Chamoiseau, I came across a word of Norman French. Now, I had translated a book by someone who was Norman, and I had found a word I couldn't find. I went from dictionary to dictionary. I was writing to people saying, are you Norman? Can you tell me what does this word mean? Finally, I asked her. And this Norman word had turned up in Chamoiseau's French because it was still alive in Creole. Oh, because the Creole was made from the French of the 17th century and this word was there. Creole French, although it may seem to be very simple, is extremely rich. And English, it'll, it'll eat anything. So whatever words we find, it's simply a question of taste and judgment because the, the English reader, the English language can take anything. It carries everything. But don't, don't forget, we had a minister of culture last year in France who, who banned with a low foreign, foreign words, basically from English, being used in, in, French, in French. So it's, and we have the Academie Francaise, and we're very proud of it, and we have these stupid costumes and whatever, and that's, that's <laughs> France. It's another culture. That's <laughs> Are there any other uh, questions? I guess then uh, this is the end of our francophone evening. I'd like to thank uh, Annie Cohn-Solal, uh, Linda Coverdale, Marilyn de Jager, and Carol Volk. Thank you very, very much for coming. And as I promised, there was no talk about DNA testing. Good night. <laughs>